When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. You join me for The Bigger Picture when I'm in conversation today with Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tenancy blog. Uh, Mike, uh, where are we going to begin today? Well, we're going to go back to a favourite topic of ours, which Simon, which is Brexit. <laughs> we have we have manoeuvred through the the depths of the pandemic, and whilst we wait to see what happens next with COVID and the autumn budget, mm. we have got uh, the same old perennial question, arguably the thorniest question in British politics, which is to do with the Northern Ireland Protocol. So. Um, Long story short, the European Union has announced plans to reduce significantly the amount of uh, checks on goods and medicines that would be arriving in Northern Ireland uh, from Britain under the part of the Brexit deal that the Prime Minister signed up to. Northern Ireland has been kept inside the EU single market for goods and is intended to allow uh, free-flowing trade across the border between the North and the South. Despite the fact that both the UK and the EU signed up to the Northern Ireland Protocol, uh, one of the things that has been consistently threatened by Boris Johnson's government, particularly by Lord David Frost, who is his Brexit minister, is to trigger what's called Article 16, which would suspend the Northern Ireland Protocol and essentially uh, put, put checks into effect on the border. The EU claims their new plan would reduce the need for spot checks by about 80% and reduce about 50% of the paperwork. However, the UK has been pressing for more fundamental overhauls of the protocol, particularly removing the oversight of the European Court of Justice from this area as well. The, it's, it's a very difficult and thorny question, not least of all because most of Northern Ireland's political parties did not approve of the version of the protocol signed up to by the Johnson administration. It was essentially rolling back to an area of, of a Northern Ireland only backstop as opposed to a UK wide backstop. And whilst this is in theory going to help some of the, dis- of the disruption that Northern Ireland has endured on top of COVID, on top of HGV driver shortages as well, there is also intended from the EU to be improved engagement with politicians and business groups as well, because as we all remember, the component uh, of the protocol can only be implemented so long as a majority in the Northern Ireland Assembly want it to be in effect. Mm. So you have to wait and see what they feel of these proposals. Because I understand it, 20% of all the border checks happening within the EU uh, at the border have, have been um, uh, in Northern Ireland. Um, so it's which is it's odd in a sense. I mean, you can sort of understand why, but at the same time, it, the worry, of course, for the EU is that we're diverging from EU standards. But as far as I can tell, 
nothing along those lines has sort of happened yet. I mean, whether it's because COVID got in the way or our government just doesn't want to change anything, I don't know. But we still, as far as I can tell, in almost every regard, um, follow the EU standards on everything. Yes, um, but remember that a country has never left the EU before, nor has it had a complex, if, if, if it, even if it was just mainland Britain, leaving the exit would be complicated enough anyway. Mm. You've never had a country leave a transnational block. You add in a, a part of the UK that is technically shared a land border with the EU, but it's now is still ostensibly part of mainland Britain as well, in addition to all the sectarian and different tensions there. Reform of the protocol was always going to be needed. Really, I would say the EU, again, are doing all the heavy lifting on this. The, um, they've come back with a set of revised proposals. The Prime Minister could have extended the transition period if he wanted to in the middle of 2020. He could have opted to have a, a longer bedding in period to try and settle the thorny questions. And uh, instead, we've had a series of bridging measures, first starting with Theresa May's uh, technological solutions, which no one really knew what that referred to. And now referring to this version of the protocol that is deeply unpopular, not least of all with the big unionist parties like the DUP. But the argument advanced by Lord Frost time and again is that the protocol is undermining the Good Friday Agreement and the peace process. And whilst the EU have acknowledged the difficulties that it's, co- it's, co- it's caused, again, it feels like they are facing up to a UK government that is, again, moving the goalposts because at some point in time, this government, Boris Johnson's government, signed up to this current version of the protocol, and they are the ones who are ultimately responsible, I think, for giving the people of Northern Ireland such a rum deal. Mm. I'm reminded of that quotation. I remember when I did um, history for A-level of Lord Palmerston about the Sledrig-Holstein question. Um, the Sledrig-Holstein question is so complicated, only three men in Europe have ever understood it. One was Prince Albert, who's dead. The second was a German professor who became mad. I'm the third, and I've forgotten all about it. Um, I mean, it just is staggeringly complicated. I, I'm, I'm assuming I'm not the only person who just finds it incredibly difficult to get my head around this or can see some obvious solution. The short answer is there is no simple solution to this, partly because of the fact that the aims of Brexit do not comply with the basic aims of the Northern Ireland peace process, which is to encourage North-South cooperation, to keep the island of Ireland um, functioning as far as possible, despite there being two different political sovereign units on the island, to keep it economically, socially functioning in a way that allows people to live their lives. And some of the brightest minds um, I know inside government have been working on this as well. People, civil servants who are you know, incredibly talented, incredibly brilliant. There is no simple solution to this, but what we've been hampered by, arguably time and again, is the childish negotiating tactics of this Prime Minister and his Brexit Secretary, who have simply resorted to convenience to pass the initial Brexit deal, which involved arguably hosted the DUP by the own petard, because as we remember, they were propping up Theresa May's government. They could have had a better version of the backstop that didn't quite meet up to their expectations. Signing up to this current version of the protocol, which is actually a, which only involves rolling back to a Northern Ireland only backstop agreement. It's funny, we don't hear the word backstop anymore, but this is what we're talking about. And of course, most importantly, the Prime Minister then saying there wouldn't be any checks on the borders and that being shown to be a complete fabrication. This alone would be a resigning matter for any serious senior politician, for Boris Johnson, 
to have undermined the stability of Northern Ireland's political institutions for the sake of expediency the way he has it, and then to leave it to Brussels to pick up the pieces is what I think of the, 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 the many things that should come back to, to haunt this prime minister down the line. But we are where we are. The revised protocol uh, suggestions from the EU have received broadly warm welcome from both cross-party and uh, nationalist communities. The unionists are a little more sceptical, but I suspect that Geoffrey Donaldson, the DUP's new leader, has half an eye on next year's Northern Ireland Assembly elections. Uh, he'll obviously want to be the first minister in Stormont at that period. So what we are left with is a period where this is arguably should be in the hands of technocrats, but this will become a hot button election issue in the run up to Stormont's poll in early 2022. Okay, Mike, thank you. Perhaps a good moment for us to take a, a quick uh, breather. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio. I'm in conversation with political commentator Mike Indian. Um, so, Mike, we um, were talking last time ahead of the Conservative Party conference. I think the Labour had just had um, theirs. Uh, we've now had the Conservative Party conference um, you know, actually held in... The first time that um, Boris Johnson could actually address... Um, the party faithful in person since winning the election, I think. Is that, is that right? Yes. And how did is. he do? It was a very, it was the speech he wanted to give 12 months ago, basically. And funnily enough, the, the week before his Labour conference, there was a great deal of uh, debate around the conference circuit about how the Labour leadership should refer to the Prime Minister and the Conservative Party. Angela Rayner adopted one approach, which is to slag them off. The Keir Starmer actually took, I think, a far more nuanced and clever approach, and one I think that will play far better in the country as a whole, which is to criticise the Prime Minister for what he said for, for, as, as his triviality, a man who was not obsessed with detail. And Starmer himself sort of contrasted himself, not very successfully, I'd argue, as a, as a more substantial figure with this 90-minute speech. In the end, from the Prime Minister, what we got was the typical bombast, detail-light, and incredibly uh, short by comparison speech. Now, arguably the length was okay. It was about 45 minutes. These things often go on for an hour. Now, given that Boris Johnson apparently started working on this speech back in July, and he is at the moment midterm, he, he has been uh, only elected a couple of years ago, but already the priorities facing the country have arguably dramatically shifted. We're weeks away from the uh, the spending review being announced, which will set the envelope of money for helping the pub public services in the wider country recover. To have a speech that was essentially full of jokes and gags and played well to the party faithful, really, I think, reflects on why he isn't going to go down as one of our more substantial leaders. Now, I, I happen to think that the three previous Conservative Prime Ministers we've had going back to David Cameron, have been some of the weakest ones we've had in modern times in terms of ability and talent. This isn't about intentions or policy, and we're talking about um, leadership ability and substance here. And I think Boris Johnson is something entirely different compared to his two immediate predecessors in the sense that I cannot remember really ever watching a party conference speech and being surprised to think, and I've watched 
quite a few in my last mm. 10 years of following politics and being so surprised at how brief it was. And people might say, oh, you know, the briefer, the better. But remember that these opportunities, this is somebody speaking who has real power and influence here. It's not like the leader of the Labour Party where they're trying to set out an alternative programme. For... If Keir Starmer had given a brief speech, we would all criticise him and say he doesn't know what he stands for, but he is two years away from an election. Mm. Boris Johnson, we expect a coherent vision. We expect something that to, to back up the levelling up slogans, the build back better. And yet there is an increasing sense that this government does not have that. The reshuffle did give us Michael Gove as the levelling up secretary, but a lack of definition, a triviality, as Keir Starmer refers to it, does pervade Boris Johnson's Conservative Party. And unfortunately, the Prime Minister is still stuck in trying to celebrate his majority, rather in the same way that Donald Trump tried to childishly hang on to the 2016 presidential election result without realising it that his honeymoon period is now over, was over in March 2020, and he has now repositioned himself as a far more serious and substantial figure. Yes, it's odd in a sense, because when he was a journalist, I mean, his articles fizzed with ideas. I'm not saying they were all sensible, but you, know, you di didn't lack for imagination and, and, you know, ideas that perhaps were sometimes out of left field. But you, you just don't get the impression, as you say, that there's any coherent um, picture of where they want to go at the centre, do you? The trouble is, is that when the Prime Minister is, has delivered a series of speeches, and let's just say levelling up is a great example of this at the moment, it's been left to the most experienced departmental minister in the government, Michael Gove, to substantiate what exactly the government wishes to refer to that. Now, we're, we're due a levelling up white paper soon, but we're two weeks, sorry, two years into this government now, and nearly two years since the election win, which handed Boris Johnson the largest mandate in terms of seats that any Conservative Prime Minister had had since Thatcher in 87, certainly in, in my lifetime. That you know, he, he said this is a mandate for radical change. This white paper should have been ready to go within the first year of his government. We're into year number three now. And he talks about all the right issues, you know, and they're the, apparently... The, the triviality is such that he would, all the other major secretaries of state, with the exception of the chancellor, uh, were banned from making big policy announcements in their speeches, whilst the prime minister went around Whitehall hoovering up what ideas were there. We shouldn't dis distract from the fact that the government is in its 12th year in office now. They, this is not, by the time New Labour had reached this point, they were dealing with the um, the global financial crisis, which gave Gordon Brown a fresh sense of impetus, but it took but look, this hasn't really invigorated Boris Johnson. It hasn't really forced him to think, despite the fact that he has in an, unintentionally, I would argue, put the country in a position where we're now facing big state conservatism and you know notorious racing taxes. But there is no thought that goes into this. Boris Johnson is purely responding opportunistically to events, and there is no strategic direction in anything he says. And that speech, given that he's been working on it since... July, you thought to it might have been. I don't ever think we'll see a serious side to Boris Johnson. What I do want to see is a recognition that some more substance is required and some different ways of thinking beyond just trying to appeal to the Conservative Party faithful. The Prime Minister has reportedly decided, and this is according to the Daily Mirror the last week, that he will decide if he's going to run for re election in just under two years' time. So around the spring of 2023. So that's probably 18 months away, realistically, mm -hmm. now, March, April 2023. That's not far off now. 
I suspect, I strongly suspect that there's a good chance Boris Johnson won't run for re-election. I think he may feel he's done enough. Um, it wasn't the case as with David Cameron. He felt that um, he could do a good job of being prime minister. He's spent his entire premiership to date in the pursuit of power. He's given the Tories their largest majority in um, 30, 40 years, but he has also backed them into a corner in the sense that if either they adapt to make this new electoral coalition work, or they will put a whole swathe of people, including those ex-Labour voters that they pulled in to, to do with Brexit and to do with other things, off voting for them entirely. And polls show that whilst Labour support is holding the dips in Conservative seats that they won in the Red Wall two years ago have been down to people switching to apathy rather than to the alternate parties. Now that is partly to do with Labour being a bit of a mess, but also to do with the fact that the Conservatives did make a bold offer but didn't flesh out the details, and detail has never been Boris Johnson's strong point. Mm. Well, uh, you mentioned uh, the Chancellor at uh, one point, let us quickly pause for breath, and then I think um, we should discuss what he's likely to do. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with political commentator Mike Indian, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Uh, let's look ahead to the, the autumn... Um, budget. I mean, um, uh, the Chancellor really has been, <laughs> it, there can be few Chancellors who've been faced with so many problems so early in their tenure. I mean, he was only weeks into the job when they had to start announcing the first of the emergency uh, COVID measures. So I guess his hands are to some extent tied, aren't they? Well, the fiscal position is not looking good. We're all familiar with the, the highest level of national debt uh, we've ever had. It's above 100% of GDP for the first time since the 1960s. It's down to over £2 trillion. Deficit last year was £400 billion. But we also have a Chancellor here who is an unusual political operator. Now, Rishi Sunak is the member of the government who's had the most impact certainly in people's lives he has made the announcements that people have generally speaking gravitated to as far as popularity is concerned so for example furlough scheme immensely successful at keeping the unemployment rate down but he's also done some more controversial things like eat out to help out which split opinion but what you can't deny is that in terms of actions and consequences in terms of steering this government in a very different direction it has been a cabinet minister of, of just over two years experience who was chief secretary of the treasury local government minister before that and has been chancellor just let us remind ourselves very much 18 to 20 months now that has made the most impact so this spending review is the chance for rishi sunak to really put his mark in across government and it will be his spending review because the minister in charge of the spending review uh Technically, Steve Barclay, the Chief Secretary of the Treasury, has been reshuffled weeks ago to the Cabinet Office. Simon Clark has been brought in, will only be picking up the notes. So this will be a document which the Chancellor has his fingerprints all over. And it also comes after the big weeks after the biggest tax rise in a generation was announced with the 1.25% increase in national insurance, which is a tenfold increase on the previous level. Mm. The astonishing fact is that what, given Rishi Sunak's reported credentials as a free market conservative, we're, we're seeing 
yes, some element of fiscal consolidation through Whitehall government's department's been asked to find uh, savings. So most notably, we see the suspension of the triple lock we've seen, but these are largely totemic measures. The chancellor has actually shown a remarkable degree of political insight on many issues, but the arguably the biggest one that is facing him is issues to do with, first of all, business rates, where Labour have uh, proposed, part proposed an alternative. This is something that hits physical retailers very hard at a time when, even though that the world signed up to this 15% uh, minimum corporation tax, that's only, st only still 0.25%, 2.5% more than Ireland's low rate mm. at the moment. But also there's this issue of the potential winter discontent we're heading into. And I, I was I had some fun this week rework tweaking some of the names in that famous Richard III speech. <laughs> uh, you know, this 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 son of Eton and here comes Carrie and all that. Yeah. But Rishi Sunak's been talking about bear in mind that he stood on the conference stage last week and said that he believed in Brexit. But if we have a lean Christmas in terms of supply shortages, those people can't be able to be able to get what they want. And bear in mind, we've gotten very used to that, not just in recent times, but especially over the pandemic when we've ordered stuff from home like never before. Any issues with supply chains of food, toys, anything else over Christmas are likely to see the finger pointed very much at the Chancellor. So he's he's heading into a difficult season. And this is probably why. The Chancellor has come out today and said that ministers are doing absolutely everything they can to fix the supply chain issues. Uh, he's been meeting with uh, uh, G7 uh, finance leaders in Washington this week, so alongside Janet Yellen and the other um, key leaders from the seven largest economies in the world. But the largest commercial port in the UK says the supply chain crisis has created a logjam of shipping. So it's the goods that are there, it's getting them to where they need mm. to be. There's a shortage of road hauliers and many of the biggest ships have been re removed away from the port. So there could be a lot of stuff there potentially that people have ordered that they want to get their hands on that cannot simply get to the shops. Add to this the issue of the, uh, the energy price crisis as well. And you really do feel that this government is, despite a majority of 80, perhaps has more in common with poor Jim Callaghan's uh, in, in 1978, when it was facing a great deal of disruption, didn't really know what to do, because most of these conservatives by instinct are free marketeers. Uh, not all of them, even people like Boris Johnson embrace the big state side um, casually, but they're, they're Funnily enough, after the year of extraordinary intervention we've had, certainly on things like energy prices, the state is going to need to do more to get things to the shops to, to ensure that they're there if it wants people to be kept happy. But at the moment, if you look at, say, with the energy price crisis, the business secretary, and we could talk about his relationship with Rishi Sunak as well, because that's fascinating in itself, the tension between uh, Kwasi Kwarteng and, uh, and Rishi around the cabinet table over the energy price issue. He said that people would have to tough it out whilst we sorted out issues to do with, say, leaving the European single energy market as well. And this really comes back to what I was saying earlier about the crisis of identity inside the Conservative Party, because at the moment you've got this desire to try and protect certain elements of the UK economy, for example, restricting migrant labour. 
uh, Steve Richards points out this is a Benite policy. It's a form of import control. You keep wages high by keeping cheap foreign labor low. And in theory, that drives up the demand for wages, but it also creates a surplus of jobs. And it ignores the fact that Conservatives' economic success in parentheses, bear in mind the weak levels of growth, bear in mind the rising levels of inflation, bear in mind the high levels of national debt, has been built on low-skilled, low cost labour, which is largely fueled by, certainly if you, for those of us who live in London know how many migrants work in the service mm. industry. Now, I can walk around my neighbourhood and I can see signs in the window. It portrays a sense of economic illiteracy. And this is really the government, having been in office for so long, reaping its own reward here in terms of a mean, lean approach to the economy. This Chancellor has to find a way of restoring what people expect in terms of creature comforts. Now, I'm not, no one's suggesting that we're facing, you know, dire circumstances. We're still a, a big economy. We're still, you know, a well-off country here. But people will be experiencing tougher times. And unfortunately, after the pandemic, going into Christmas, the Prime Minister's instinct is to be bullish and optimistic. It may be down to Mr Sunak to, to play the role of what chancellors have traditionally done and be the only straight person around the cabinet table in terms of being able to keep their face, you know, and, and be the realist in the situation mm. as well. But for Rishi Sunak, somebody who has enjoyed the glossy attention, has been consistently voted near the top of most uh, opinion polls among party members, but also the wider country, is seen still, I'd argue, as Boris Johnson's heir apparent. And that could be coming sooner than we think. That need that for him to be liked to balance political expediency i think will be a hard one for him to swallow when he has to deliver tougher news particularly that you know the the necessary measures that might be needed just to keep essential goods flowing it has his ability to, to, to talk about brexit but most importantly i'd argue the next few weeks will show us whether or not he really has the metal to be the next occupant of downing street Mike, um, I think briefly you want to talk about the uh, problem the NHS has with uh, with waiting lists, people waiting for hospital treatment. I mean, the NHS waiting list was pretty um, large even before the pandemic hit, and obviously that's had a massive knock-on effect. So what have we just seen? Is it almost 6 million people? 5.7 million people waiting for hospital treatment yeah. alone. And I, I have members of my family who I know have been waiting for treatment as well, and they've, they've had a long, a long and... Uh, uncertain spell and mm. we really this is this is coming up for another testing week for the health secretary Sajid Javid who says he hasn't read a cross-party uh, cross-committee report that criticized the government's um, handling of the pandemic this week the the health secretary is pushing for more face-to-face -face GP appointments but the simple fact that nearly six million people are on hospital waiting lists but we must remember this is a result of the pandemic they're rising by nearly a hundred thousand a month as the health service is struggling to clear the backlog created by the pandemic at a time when um, people did not seek or could not access NHS mm. treatment or visit a GP a lot of that will have been due to personal choice but don't forget at the height of the pandemic, you know, the government's messaging was so arguably effective in terms of fear, it has kept people away. And even now, I suspect there are people who are concerned about the greater risk of, say, catching COVID than they are about more serious health issues as well. Now, 
we can accept that COVID is serious for some people, but the, the level of waiting lists, you know, for example, excess cancer mortality, crisis in mental health access, issues to do with other forms of treatment as well. The combined death toll for these will far outpace COVID. And there'll be a lot of people who are not getting the treatment that they need. I mean, there are nearly 370,000 people in England who've been waiting more than six weeks for a key diagnostic test. So unless the health secretary can unblock the system at a time when the government is for some reason choosing to rewire the structure of the whole NHS, and the time when the health secretary says that he is sorry for COVID loss, but he hasn't read the Commons report in detail, this is another case in point when, at a time when COVID death tolls are still quite low, but cases are rising. This is another time when we need serious leadership. And again, I look at this government, I look at this prime minister, uh, and to sound like a broken record, I don't see it from them. And what I don't see, Simon, is a serious plan to get us out of this. Now, it may be that Rishi Sunak comes out with something, you know, the saving graces of the government's policies have come from him. And I honestly hope that he does have something in his hat, George Osborne has to try and pull this out. And if anyone can do it, arguably it is him because he has the serious lifting weight inside government. But that's going to mean breaking with his political mental, breaking with the man who's put him to the top of government as well and risking a breach. But for Boris Johnson, the man who can get him out of this, the man who can arguably save his premiership from being at the moment seen as a disastrous period for this country is Rishi Sunak. Hmm. Mike, thank you. I can't say that you cheered me up very much over the last half hour. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while, I think, since we've had anything um, to look forward to. Perhaps that will change the next time we talk. But my thanks to Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Thank you very much indeed, Mike. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.